Join Capital Group CEO Mike Gitlin for a new edition of the Capital Ideas Podcast. In unscripted conversations with investment professionals, you'll hear real stories about successes and lessons learned, informed by decades of investment experience. It's your look inside one of the world's largest asset managers. New episodes are available monthly. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Invest 30 minutes in an episode today. Published by American Funds Distributors, Inc. This is Recode Media with Peter Kafka, and that is me. And today I've got an interview with Bloomberg reporter Davy Alba, who covers online misinformation. Unfortunately, there's an element to this conversation that's sadly relevant to the news we're all grappling with right now. While we were recording this interview, which includes a discussion of the mass shooting in Buffalo earlier this month, there was another mass shooting underway in Evalde, Texas. And as I'm recording this note, there's currently a back and forth between the governor of Texas and Facebook about messages the shooter left in advance of his attack and whether those were public or private notes. So this may be something we pick up again in the future. For now, let's listen to my chat with Davey Alba, which is wide ranging and useful. Today, I'm talking to Davey Alba. She's an excellent tech reporter who spends a lot of time covering online misinformation. That is a never ending beat. She spent the last few years at the New York Times and she recently moved over to Bloomberg. Welcome, Davey. Thanks for having me. I wanted to have you on. I wanted to talk about your beat. Um, we spend a lot of time on this podcast talking about misinformation and the way the tech platforms are trying to handle it and whether they should be handling it. I want to talk about how you do your reporting. And I wanted to talk to you about some stories you've written recently. The first one is the horrible shooting in Buffalo. There was a white supremacist who killed 10 people. He live streamed the attack on Twitch. I think most of the people in our audience will remember an echo of this from Christchurch in New Zealand a few years ago, where someone shot up, I think it was multiple mosques, and live-streamed a lot of that on Facebook. Um, and at the time, there was a lot of, a lot of how could this happen? What, what's the tech platform's responsibility? We heard a lot from the platforms that were going to try to do better. What did they learn from that experience, and did any of it come into play this time around in Buffalo? They have learned some things. Um, you know, I don't want to not give them credit for being faster at taking down certain pieces of content. When the Christchurch shooting happened, the video was everywhere, like absolutely everywhere. And since then, the companies have improved on hashing technology, where they create a kind of digital footprint of this horrible video, whatever it is, and, you know, sort of use that database of hashes across platforms um, to take it down. This is essentially the same tech that YouTube was using 10 years ago to take down copyright violations. Um, instead of taking down an illicit Madonna video, you're taking down a mass shooting video because you could identify a digital signature. Yeah, that's right. Um, and the companies have sort of come up with a coalition called GIF-CT, it's the Global Internet Forum to Counter Terrorism. And it was started in 2017, largely to respond to the Christchurch shooting. And Facebook, Microsoft, Twitter, YouTube, all the big players are on it, including the two big players where this horrible attack was streamed on Discord and Twitch. And to Twitch's credit, you know, the, the attack was up for less than two minutes the actual violence, I should say. There was a much longer stream of him just sort of driving to Tops, the grocery store, and getting out of his car. But as soon as the violence started, they were pretty good about pulling that down. That didn't 
really matter, though, because there were copies of it that were quickly made that proliferated across the internet and the tech platforms had, you know, much more difficulty taking down those copies. So my colleague Shireen Ghaffari and I wrote about this as well. YouTube told me I think they'd taken down 400 copies of the video. Facebook said it took down a bunch as well. We don't know how many floated out and for how long they floated out. Do you have a sense of whether the platforms, and again, they have this coalition where they can share these hashes, were better at taking stuff down? It's sort of an impossible question to answer, I guess, because you don't know compared to what. But do we know if they were able to... Just because stuff floated around doesn't mean that a lot of people saw it. Do we know if they were better at suppressing it, making it harder to find? What we know is that the the platforms were faster at it. But it's, I mean, any amount of time that this stuff is on is too much time. You know, it took like 24 hours for Facebook and others to take down copies of the video that were hosted not on these platforms that were part of the coalition, but other streaming websites like Streamable, not a huge company, hosted a a video that went absolutely viral on Facebook. And you can see that through their CrowdTangle data. CrowdTangle is sort of this social media analytics tool that's owned by Facebook. And since it is owned by Facebook, we can rely on that data pretty well. We saw that that had gotten, you know, tens of thousands of shares um, to this off-platform link. So they're not sharing that the video is not on Facebook, but there's a link saying, hey, if you want to see this horrible attack, go here. And that link got shared a lot. Exactly. And, you know, Twitter wasn't too much better. In the first 24 hours, they saw some tweets sharing the video, again, on another platform, at least 1,100 tweets sharing that, that video. I mean, this guy created so much content, and that's that's part of the problem here. He put up Discord chat logs that was basically his diary planning out this atrocious attack. No one caught it. No one found it before it happened. And he also put up a manifesto on Google Drive. He wanted this stuff to be seen in advance. He wanted to build an audience for this, and then he wanted yes. it to live on after the attack. It was all intentionally meant to be distributed online. Yeah, and ironically, you know, the when the, the attack was live-streamed, I think there were only about 20 or 19 viewers. But after the fact, that's when it really, really spread throughout the internet. And it's become permanent in a lot of ways. That number, I think I heard 22. 22 people watched the live stream. A couple dozen people watched the live stream at the time on Twitch. Does that mean that at least one of those 22 people said, this is great, I want to distribute this, that's my point? Or did somehow one of those 22 viewers record it and then someone else took it? Because, I mean, 22 people on in the internet's very small number. Someone had to spend time and energy trying to figure out how to get this on other platforms. Yeah, exactly. And if you think about it that way, the guy accomplished exactly what he wanted to do, which was immortalize this video and, you know, in some ways inspire others to commit similar heinous acts. You mentioned the the prep work he did on Discord to sort of build an audience and get this information out there. I think Discord is probably 
still foreign to a lot of people who listen to this podcast. I know about it because my kids use it all the time for gaming, and also they kind of use it just as their school's version of Facebook. They're just communicating with their friends on it. Explain how Discord works and how it is and isn't like other social media platforms. Sure. So Discord is a huge platform at this point. Again, like you said, it's usually sort of younger people that are on it. They have like thousands and thousands of um, servers or channels, basically these sort of small themed chats. Um, I think of Discord as sort of very similar to Slack in a way. The format of it is similar. There's like a sidebar on the left that has, you know, various channels and you can DM people. And then people subscribe to servers that align with their interests. So you know, just like Facebook groups and other toxic parts of the internet, there might be hobbyist groups on there. And there are also really horrible groups that are dedicated to white supremacy and extremism and all sorts of topics. So anyone can spin up a server, right? And it could be you and your friends hang out and and talk crap about the other kids in sixth grade, or you can pair notes on a video game. It doesn't, as far as I understand, have the same sort of mechanism that Facebook and Twitter and YouTube have where they say, upload this thing and then we'll figure out how to distribute it to as many people as possible. It's it's meant to sort of be individual groups. And we've seen versions of that like Reddit where actually it was very toxic and actually seems to have cleaned up its act. It's self-moderated in a lot of cases. Is there a way for – I think Discord's valued at $15 billion, but it's still a fairly small company – is there a way and or a desire on the part of, of Discord to monitor all these tiny rooms and potentially, you know, very tiny rooms and say and check in on what's going on there? Yeah, I mean, I think there's always room to look at extremist content and make sure that that stuff is not on your platform if you have the will to do so. Since 2017, which was the Charlottesville event when my white supremacists um marched in Charlottesville and um, that sort of, uh, you know, pro-white supremacy um, crowd erupted in violence. Um, Since then, the company has removed like 24,000 accounts and 2,000 servers. So they do monitor this stuff and say, hey, stop being a Nazi. We're going to kick you off the platform. (laughs) Yeah, I mean, they do. But that doesn't necessarily mean they're catching everything. Um, For this kind of thing, my guess would be that they are searching for text strings of keywords um, related to violent extremism and taking that stuff down. 24,000 accounts is not a ton when you have millions and millions of accounts. And, you know, the fact that we were actually able to comb through the shooter's Discord chat logs, which is basically just, you know, text that he's typing into the platform and found all of these keywords that were, should totally have set off some alarms. You know, this is not rocket science. You can just do a control F sort of across the platform. He mentioned gun 200 times. He mentioned shoot 119 times. And the word attack in 200 instances He's used racist and anti-Semitic language. And again, to be clear, this is this is stuff that you and your report, your your colleagues at Bloomberg found. It's not like Discord said, "Hey, we found this stuff. We're showing this off." Exactly, exactly. This was after the fact, after the event. 
this guy posted logs because, again, he wanted to memorialize this stuff on the internet, was hoping it would spread, and a bunch of people got a hold of it, and reporters also got to look at the contents of it. So this guy was directly influenced by Christchurch. Presumably there are other people out there who are going to take inspiration from him. Is it harder, easier, or kind of neutral in terms of if you are a aspiring mass shooter and you want to get attention for something horrific you, you plan to do in the future? Is it easier to get attention for this stuff, or, or have the platforms gotten better at making it more difficult for you to go viral with your atrocity? I think the point you made earlier about what do we compare it against, because only the platforms know, really, is really astute. And I don't know. I don't know how to measure that because we don't have all the information that they have. What we know is that a lot of people have carried out things like this, like these, you know, sort of mass shooting events that have killed people. And those events have become permanent on the internet. And there's no good way for it to be removed once it happens. You can look it all up pretty easily if you if you have the will to, and I don't recommend that to anyone. We'll be right back after a word from a sponsor. Did you know the Capital Ideas podcast now has a new monthly edition hosted by Capital Group CEO, Mike Gitlin? Through the words and experiences of investment professionals, you'll discover who was their best mentor, What's a mistake they made that changed their approach? And how do they find their next great idea? Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Published by American Funds Distributors, Inc. And we're back. I want to come back to this idea, but I want to talk about a more recent story you wrote in the last few days about a wave of misinformation around infant formula. This is because there's a shortage. People are online looking to find bottles of formula, and people are also sharing recipes about how to make your own formula. And you wrote about a wave of, of I guess, ill-informed and or, or well, like I put the polite ways, ill-informed recipes for this stuff that the platforms are are taking down. Can you just discuss sort of this, the scope of that problem? Yeah, definitely. Baby formula is very regulated by the FDA because it is so important to have specific nutrients that help the growth of babies um, when they are very young. It is actually dangerous to give babies, you know, like cow's milk, very, very, very young babies, I should say, because these early months of development are so, so important. So with a formula shortage crisis, People are looking for solutions. There had been some sort of posts I saw floating around the internet that had bad advice, including DIY formulas from the 1960s. People were posting them and saying, hey, you know, I grew up on this. It was fine back then. Just in case you can't find formula, here's, here's a way to make these, these homemade formulas. Do we know these homegrown recipes that they they were promoting are actually dangerous? We do know that they are dangerous. It is definitely not recommended by the FDA. And, you know, there were a bunch of these things, I should say. There's the old-timey recipe, and it's pretty distinct as soon as you kind of have an idea of what the photo looks like. Mm -hmm. I we actually included the the photo in the story and I thought that that was a good idea. We did not include the instructions part, but the the top part of it has 
like this picture of a baby and it says terminal heating method. The the ingredients and the way that that formula is made, it is very susceptible to contamination. So, you know, pediatricians I talked to said that they had seen, you know, seizures in in babies and the risk of low calcium and in some cases, these babies have been hospitalized when given that formula. There's also the Weston A. Price Foundation, which is a peddler of misinformation. They've spread falsehoods about the coronavirus and vaccines um, that also promoted its formula um, widely across the internet. And we were seeing that as well. And th- this was something, the reason I saw this uh, before I saw your story is I'd seen conservative-ish people promoting this as an example of censorship going amok. Ajit Pai, who was Donald Trump's FCC chair and in many places a well-respected person, was sharing a tweet. Uh, he didn't write it, but he was retweeting it and says, Facebook is censoring a vintage recipe for homemade baby formula. And I think for a lot of people, even pre-pandemic, the idea of saying, listen, just because the FDA or, a, or someone's doctor says this is not good, if this was good enough in the 60s or for my mom or whatever, why can't I share this? And and by the way, there's lots of stuff that the either the FDA either says this is not good or we don't rule on. There's all kind of, you can peddle any kind of supplement, basically, right? That probably is not good for you, but the FDA doesn't regulate that. Did you think about sort of the way that people perceive sort of official health proclamations from government agencies and, and whether or not presumably many more people are now more distrustful of them than they were three years ago? Yeah, I mean, it's a good point, and it is something that I thought about. We included some context in the story that tried to speak to this. The difference between the 60s and now is that the science is much better, and we've seen more cases of actual contamination leading to actual harm in babies, like the most vulnerable Mm -hmm. population that can possibly exist. And, you know, I, I understand the point about skepticism of big agencies and sort of official agencies. We even saw, you know, tons of about faces and confusing guidance from the various health agencies on COVID, around mask wearing, whatever. But the thing is, the science um, that the pediatricians talk about and the high risk of contamination for a very vulnerable population is very clear at this point. And so, you know, I don't think that the 60s were better in terms of infant mortality rates. It was great. You could smoke and drink through pregnancy. A madman made it look very glamorous. <laughs> right. Like, are we still recommending that? Would that be censored? <laughs> censored, quote unquote. So, I mean, I think, again, one of the reasons that people, you know, this is this is a problem that's affecting a lot of people. But also, I think there's now a as, again, especially on the conservative end of the media spectrum, an audience says, aha, Facebook and Twitter are, are blocking information. This is this is uh, censorship run amok. First of all, how do Facebook and Twitter and YouTube figure out that they want to take this stuff down? It's, it's pretty fast moving, right? The idea of an infant formula shortage is really new. You know, the 2020 election, they had time to spin up for that. The pandemic was the pandemic. They got to it belatedly and then sort of went back and forth. How did they decide this is a problem and here's how we're going to respond to it? Well, they didn't decide. Um, I think the first sort of domino in this was the fact checkers, Facebook employees, a network of third-party fact checkers, they they look at viral posts. They identified this recipe that was dangerous for babies. 
and flagged it. And that allowed Facebook to label these recipes as, you know, you should have some additional context. Pediatricians don't recommend this, all of that. That was the first kind of domino, like I said. And then the other platforms weren't looking for this stuff at all until I started reporting on it um, and going to them, asking them about these videos that I found. And I included links. And those were like specific recipes that were, again, flagged to me by pediatricians as containing extremely dangerous methods. A couple of them used raw milk, unpasteurized. Those would kill, you know, bacteria that would be in the milk. And and then, you know, this, again, this all is working on top of this world of alternative health influencers um, that can pivot and try to sell you supplements. And the tech companies were not thinking about this until we started asking questions. This is one of the recurring elements of, of any of these, hey, look what we found on your platform stories, and I've seen them for years, which is the, the YouTube or Facebook or Twitter says, we have a policy against this, and then someone like you or your colleagues at BuzzFeed or the New York Times, wherever, or Wall Street Journal calls them up and says, hey, look what I found. And then there's a back and forth and eventually it gets taken down. And they've, I'm always fascinated that they're essentially outsourcing work to journalists or other folks when they have billions of dollars and literal rocket science working on their platforms. And then I always come back to, let's assume they're making good faith efforts to deal with this stuff and it's fast moving. Should we conclude that this is something they can solve eventually if they put enough manpower and computer power into it? Or is this just endemic and this is built into a system where people can upload stuff and to these giant platforms that are global and there's never going to be enough eyes and effort to take it down? That is a big question. And it's sort of one of the main questions that I get asked a lot. I don't necessarily have solutions. I report on the problem and the scope of it. I am... If you ask for my personal opinion, I think I lean more towards the latter of what you said, that this is endemic to user-generated content where you get to throw up anything first and then the platforms look at it afterwards. There's all sorts of advances in AI and automated methods of takedown. That is always playing catch-up because the human context of information is constantly evolving and platforms have to pivot like crazy every single time something new happens. And misinformation is so tied to the news cycle. it's It latches onto whatever is going viral in the news, whatever is in the news, you know, sort of top of people's minds. And so this cycle just continues and continues. The one thing I'll say is that I don't understand why the platform's will not actually address these networked accounts that we've reported on for a long time. Me and, you know, tons of people on this beat, things like the alternative health influencers, the COVID conspiracies, the QAnon conspiracists, like they have made moves. Like QAnon was taken down in late 2020 on the major platforms, but there are all of these like winks and nods towards these things. And it's just all in the water. And I don't understand why these things that are, we know of, we know of, we've reported on the phenomenon as well documented, why the companies won't act on those. I mean, it's actually 
pretty hard to go find QAnon content for a layperson periodically when I'm writing about something and I want to find an example of something. You, know, you Google QAnon, you really don't get results. Um, Facebook and Twitter. I mean, obviously it exists like you're talking about, but you kind of have to know where to look or be in a community where people are sharing that stuff. Do we give Facebook and YouTube and Twitter credit for making it harder for, for drive-by people like myself to, to happen upon QAnon stuff? We have reported on that um, turn of events and, you know, we're very measured about presenting the facts as they are. These companies made like a big policy switch um, at the end of 2020, like I said, taking QAnon accounts off of the platforms, all of this. Of course, these people who were already in kind of these conspiratorial circles quickly found alternative platforms to get on. So, it's all over Telegram. It's all over, you know, um, Discord and some other platforms. And once you kind of learn the language, you'll start to see the winks and nods on the mainstream platforms and the off-platform links and all of these things. And so I'm not sure that I would say that it's, you know, hard to find. I think you, if you know what the clues are, you can kind of find them everywhere. Fair enough. One thing that seems to have changed relatively recently is reaction in some parts of, of civilized society to the arguments you're making, to your beat, to the idea that misinformation is something that platforms should be trying to stop. You know, for a few years, you had people on the right saying, you know, Facebook and Twitter are censoring us. And no one in technology really took that seriously. And over the last year or so, um, plenty of people who are very smart and, and certainly should know what they're talking about, like Mark Andreessen from Andreessen Horowitz, and now Elon Musk, who wants to own Twitter, saying there should there, this effort to, to stamp out misinformation is really just a, a way of saying that it's censoring unpopular ideas or ideas that come from the right if you're on the left, et cetera. Um, do you find more pushback either in the tech community or among your readers in general when you're reporting about this stuff saying, hey, there's no problem with sharing old baby milk formulas. Stay out of this. Yeah, I think that that is a hard question to answer because anytime you write about an issue that people have a very strong opinion should, you know, still be allowed to be posted freely on the platforms, you'll get a lot of people saying, I don't agree with you. You know, you get a lot of like DMs and harassment. It's that part is not fun. So I think my exposure to that sort of thing is very loud. So I can't tell what the average is. Right. So, so you, have, you have actual trolls harassing you. That sucks. When you go to the companies themselves and say, hey, you've got a problem here with baby formula problem, uh, b b bad baby formula recipes, do they say, oh, this is terrible, we'll get right on it? Or do they say, actually, maybe this isn't a problem? I mean, are you, are you, do you have any sense that that sort of Elon Musk perspective on misinformation and maybe it's not so bad and let's, let's sort of let the chips fall where they may, you know, unless you're literally threatening to kill someone or something egregious like that, just let it go. It's the Internet. Good question. I I think that I find the platform's responses very mixed. They're also very careful to stay on message. So they rarely kind of like riff on these things with me. It's not like we have open conversations. I sort of send them data, have them take a look at it. And I was pretty surprised that for the homemade baby formula stuff, TikTok and YouTube actually did take action and take down some videos and TikTok went further and killed results. Um, 
On Facebook, though, they did not broadly do that. All of these platforms have different policies. YouTube has this policy against sort of harmful substances, and and that applied to this. It's really, really hard to say what the prevailing notion is in Silicon Valley, but just among like the engineers and what they think about this stuff. But I think the fact that very prominent people like Elon Musk and Mark Andreessen are sort of out there saying this censorship has gone too far, like that is something that we should be scrutinizing because that does sway the conversation when you have these extremely rich and powerful people with a lot of capital to play with sort of saying these things and putting their money where their mouth is, basically making moves to try to change the system. To be a devil's advocate, I'm thinking back to the the Buffalo shooting and was inspired by the Christchurch shooting. We had stuff like this pre-internet, um, right? Columbine was – it wasn't pre-internet, but it was definitely pre-social media. And at the time, you did these things because you wanted the press to cover it or TV to cover it. Has anything fundamentally changed other than we've just given people a bigger platform where they can reach more people? Is Do you think that that impulse has always been sort of in society and that just the tech is changing? Or do you think the tech is changing behavior? Mm, a little of both. I know that's kind of a cop-out answer. But, you know, like you said, shootings have been around depressingly since before the internet existed. Misinformation has also been around way before the internet existed, um, when you had wars and propaganda by countries that want to sort of push their side of, of the narrative out there. All of that stuff is just humans. That's true. At the same time, we do have to acknowledge the scale and speed of this stuff. And I think the thing that's different too with these platforms now is that the algorithms that prioritize attention and engagement are still primed to do those things. And that spreads it further. Like that part, that extra mile of accounting where, you know, what, how many more people have seen this because of the algorithms, because it was so popular that it got, it got sort of like just inserted into your feed when otherwise this would have just been like a chronological feed and it would have been like, a wave passing over you, you can't, we don't know that. It comes to you. And that is a very depressing way to end the conversation, but I think we are <laughs> going to end it there. Uh, Davey Alba, you have a tough beat. I, I uh, Hats off to you, because I would not want to wade into this stuff day in, it's, day out. It's tough. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> okay. Well, I hope, you got, I hope you have some enjoyable off time as well. Uh, nice to meet you. Hope to do it in person one day. Davey Alba from Bloomberg. Thanks for coming. Thanks so much. Thanks again to Davey Alba from Bloomberg. Thanks again to Jelani and Travis for producing and editing and engineering this episode. Thanks to our sponsors for bringing it to you for free. And thanks to you guys who listen to Recode Media and occasionally tell me what you think. This is Recode Media. Like I just said, I'll see you next week.